I'm so happy that you guys are here, but Alex, you got pissed off in the last episode, and I apologize for that because I shut you down at a point, and I should know. Did he get pissed off? He, I think he was a quietly pissed, yes. Seething. And then he said, F you guys, I don't know enough about media. I'm just going to do oh, I like tech that. corner. I like that. <laughs> I'm just going to go into my tech corner. I felt very strange because usually I'm the one who throws the tantrums. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It made me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> I just sat there quiet and felt superior. I'm genuinely trying to find where people find value in this podcast. And it sounds like people want to hear more about media. Well, you it's know? a media podcast, dude. It's media, technology, and culture. It's that order. I think the, the host kind of leaned it towards media, which makes a lot of sense. And it slowly turned into a, let's all sit around the campfire and uh, talk about the good old days when, <laughs> well, let's talk when there, about was a, there were buildings here and people walking around, you know? Yeah, yeah, before we were just like wearing our headsets around. <laughs> it's like a weekly kind of live Walking Dead episode. I don't think Zin's been criminalized, is the Well, I'm not misreading headlines. I'm sensationalizing it. Yeah, there's a difference. Who owns Zin's, by the way? Is it like one of the tobacco companies? Because it's it's a freight train of a Swedish match. Just out of control. Good. It's a subsidiary of Philip Morris International. What was amazing about it is it they went from not being anywhere to to being every literally every corner store, every place that used to sell cigarettes. Now has them including the magazine stands on the streets in New York City that now I bet do far more sin revenue than they do tobacco revenue. Turns out that selling addiction is a good business. Yeah. Is there any lessons for the the news media business from Zin in this? Yeah, I, I think there's plenty. I think that what you always look for, at least the people that that are really good at content in a modern era where you I mean content in any era, but when you don't control distribution it like you used to you got to find what makes content addictive. What motivates people to seek out content? Is it their passions? Is it FOMO? Is it wanting the latest in their neighborhood? Is it news about themselves, which is essentially what social media is? It's about you. Is it the sports team that you crave to learn about because you're a massive enthusiast? It's, just, it's important to really, to really try to understand what would ever motivate someone to seek your content out. Mm. Because in the old days, you could just push it down the, the feeding tube. Now people have to say, hey, I want to watch that. And that's the biggest difference between old media and new media. So give me an example of like new media that by design, people seek out. And Daily that, Mail. Okay. Yeah, that, I agree with that. Okay. For an enthusiast like me, content on esoteric hi-fi equipment. I seek it out. For a sports fan like you weird crackpot theories on why the Eagles suck so bad at the end of the season. Yeah, I love that You stuff. know, all that. I can't get enough of it. I think if there is a passion attached to it, then there's probably a media company that you can build around it. I'll follow video game magazines and check out all the trailers and read the analysis and all that stuff. It's so fun. we're, we're going to talk about like some of the, the terrible things going on in the media business. I feel like we kind of have to, even though I'm not sure. I mean, if isn't, that this pop, isn't that this podcast? <laughs> yeah, this is it's just, an evergreen topic. Yeah. I really wanted to be more optimistic, but it definitely feels like a slow motion 
collapse of the mass media industry that's been happening arguably since the start of the internet. I don't know, maybe this is just delayed. I feel like you just wrote about this. You could read your newsletter as a... Well, I... I, I and not only that, I'm a no. little... I, I, I basically feel like I provided you with a brief for your <laughs> no, newsletter, no, no, which no, is no, so no. cheap. It's so cheap. Can you find something well, else to write about? Well, you stopped writing, so I figured <laughs> I might as well That's do great. the execution. Well, no, I wanted to prepare. I wanted to prepare, so I need to be efficient because this is a modern media world. I'm flattered. And gotta, I'm flattered. I have to do... Guys. I have to do a webinar. It's not actually a webinar. It's an online forum. It's later today at 1 p.m. What's the difference? An online forum is more like a virtual summit. Isn't forum what Penthouse <laughs> used to do? Sorry, I didn't mean. I didn't mean. I didn't mean for you to, <laughs> to hear mock that. my my <laughs> online forum slash virtual summit. So yeah, there was a lot of. There's been a lot of terrible news the last week. Just today, about 115 people got laid off at the LA Times. Time magazine is also apparently having layoffs now, and Pitchfork which I got to admit, I never read. I'm not a millennial. I'm not that into music really either. I let it out. I don't think it's a millennial. I think it's as much a Gen X thing as it is a millennial. Really? I bet everything I've read about Pitchfork says it was for millennials, but I could be wrong. Again, I didn't read it. That has been pretty much mothballed by Condé Nast, which... But you're not really a music enthusiast. You're more like, I'll go to the Madonna concert, but I'm not going to like... I have been like to a Madonna read. concert. I, I know, I know, yeah. I know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's in Miami, so he's like probably has some sort of Pitbull subscription. I'm in New York. Yeah, no, Pitbull is the patron saint of Miami. And Zins will always be legal in Miami, even if they have to secede. The Redneck Riviera is not going along with Bam. You know what you want to find with Zins, just to go full circle here, is that Zins in New York City are 8 or $9. And I can go through like a tin of them in, I don't know, six hours. Zins in like Miami or I'm not sure about Miami, but at the 7-Eleven in Long Island are $4. Oh yeah, no, I just looked it up. It's $4. I have an arbitrage opportunity here. Forget media. Yeah. Bring me some Zins this next time best. you come back. This is yeah. the best. So this is what media could do. Look for arbitrage opportunities. I could go on. There's there's more bad news that that has been coming down the pike. Do you want me to help you? What, the with other bad news? Good news, bad news, yeah. Well, it's funny, right? I mean... Meta stock reaches an all-time high. TikTok's got this kind of burgeoning commerce business. Instagram's taking back share. New York Times is doing great. Retail media is, I mean, we can go through the list, but on the companies that are collapsing besides, not collapsing, but just facing, well, in the case of Sports Illustrated, something massively oh, existential. Yeah, Sports Illustrated too. Pitchfork, WAPO, LA Times. The list goes on, dude. It's tragic. Yeah, I feel for the people for sure. Yeah, but like, just bring you, Alex. You're you now. You're just supposed to say, "Hey, this is capitalism." The media nerds got what they got. Got what they deserve. Look, man, it feels like some of the stuff that's happening. It's it's sad, but it's definitely not surprising. I don't understand how something like Pitchfork existed in 2020, let alone 2010, let alone the early 2000s. Some of this stuff, which is like, if you why 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 would you say that? Because, I mean, how can this exist as, as a large business? It could be. Nobody a, said it was a large business. It's a tiny okay. business. It was so bought why, for like $12 million yeah. in 2015. Well, so I think that is it. What, like, it why should it have been part of Condé Nast in the first place? Right, exactly. It shouldn't have been part of Condé Nast. Of course they're not. Do you, do you know the, the blog Kotki.org? Like this yeah. blogger. Jason Kotki. He shares links and here's some cool shit. And when you're talking about reviewing music, a, it feels so, it kind of feels gatekeeper-y to me, like here's what we think is good. But also, Seriously? Yeah, Do you it, review it, games? Do you read game reviews? 
But here's a, here's the difference, Troy. A game is $60. Said with game, disdain. <laughs> no, no, but I think there's a very easy calculation to make. A game is between $40 and $60 usually. Games will take 10 to 60 hours to complete and require an investment. That's if you have the hardware, you might want to you know, buy additional hardware for it. So having somebody that has access to this that can give me a little bit of a shortcut to knowing whether I should buy it or not is fine. An album that gets dropped is instantly on, on Spotify and I can listen to it and skip along. I can also subscribe to playlists that either my friends or people that I respect share. There's no kind of friction that this is helping or there's no access that this is helping you get. So to me, it was always, that sounds like a crazy bad business. If Pitchfork was like a 10-person operation that had a music event every year, etc., yeah, sure, that would be fine. But as one of the kind of brands under Condé Nast, that's crazy. It's crazy. Has anyone surprised? I mean, I'm surprised this, it lasted this long. Listen, Condé Nast is meant to be sort of a house. You don't have to like my take. It's just my take. Right. I mean, the take is fine. The point about the ability to sample music as opposed to other things you might read a review on, I think that makes sense. Conde is a collection of esteemed brands. And in the music review or in the music space broadly, Pitchfork was seen as a the premium brand. And so I think the logic was this is not just about music, it's about culture. These are really talented content creators. And we're gonna we're gonna put that into our group of brands. And it would make sense because it's the best in its category. And it was a small acquisition. So I, I don't think that the logic was tremendously flawed, also bought at a time when, when digital media was far more buoyant than it is today. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes sense as like a defector kind of thing. And that's the thing that I believe is these things should exist. Jezebel should exist. I mean, guys, we Pitchfork bought Runner's World exist. and Bicycling Magazine. And Those Men's are more mass. They're all niche publications. <laughs> but... But niche is, not, niche is not a problem. Runner's World makes perfect sense to me because there's a large group of people who like running. They're, they don't all want to buy every single shoe that there is and they want to read reviews about that. Fine, that makes sense. Music reviews feel like there's so little value to extract that eh, from it's it. It's a feature, not a product. I mean, unless if you're yeah, going to have absolutely. something in that category, Rolling Stone is a better asset. It's, I'm sure Jay Penske is making money off Rolling Stone. But how much music reporting does Rolling Stone do versus all the other shit, right? Like it's yeah. MTV collapsed and all these music brands collapsed because there's no there's no need for middlemen between the audience and the music in most cases. Now, every one of these people at Pitchfork is talented and should probably have their own Substack and very successful solo career. But I don't think as a as a media brand that exists under a larger media brand, it ever made any sense. Well, R.I.P. Pitchfork, I guess. There we go. Trey, is there anything that we can glean out of this latest, this terrible start to the year for the media business? To me, it's it's a slow motion car crash that's that's been happening over again. I wrote I wrote about it today. I felt like it was like the hundred and fiftieth variation. We talked about this before this episode. Like, I'm not sure if there's much new to be said. I'm just like almost. Can we just unwind everything that needs to be unwound right yeah, now? Yeah, I mean, we can go through it a little bit. I think it would be good if we can try to put some order to this. By the way, before we do, I love it that Matt Levine wrote a kind of primer on what happened between Authentic Brands Group and Arena and how that all went down and the mechanics of the financial transaction and how, what's the guy's name, Manoj, was able to get 
controlling position in arena and then fire the leadership team. Mm. Anyway, it's worth a re- it's Yo, worth Do you want to go through this? Because you know this. You're do you close to this. Do you want to go through this? What is, because there's so many weird things going on, and I don't think people totally understand. I mean, to me, it, it sums up how bizarre this current iteration of the media If you want to start with the SI one, I'll provide the perspective yeah. that I have on it. And so Authentic Brands Group bought SI, the brand. Sports Illustrated. Yeah. From Timing. Yeah. And Authentic Brands Group owns all kinds of... Yeah, so so do you want me to, to yeah. take a swing? Okay. So... Authentic Brands Group is run by this enterprising dude named Jamie Salter. Essentially what they are is a brand licensing company. So they'll take brands that are a little beaten up. Most of them were early on were like retail brands or product brands like uh, Billabong or Forever. What is it? Forever 17 or... I like Billabong. And they own some IP of like... You mean Forever 21? Forever 21. (laughs) They own... um, the rights to Muhammad Ali and they own Brooks Brothers, a ton of IP. And essentially what they do is they outsource everything, product design and and much of the marketing and retailing of it. And they take the brand and they license it in other markets so other people can create products around it or create extensions from it. So they're a pretty lean sort of financial organization with a license sales function and they're extremely good at it. So they keep the center lean they buy positions in lots of brands and then they kind of maximize the value of them. Most of them are down on their luck. Many of them are retailer product brands. They bought Sports Illustrated thinking that they could execute the same playbook on it. They bought it from Timing for $110 million. They then went to a couple of guys. One of them was Jim Heckman and Ross Levinson. And they said, Do you wanna we're not publishers? Do you wanna do you wanna create the content, monetize the content? And you you become the publisher, you'll license the brand from us, we'll extend the brand to I don't know, gambling or wherever else you wanna see the Sports Illustrated brand. And they did a deal where they were essentially paying fifteen million dollars a deal a, a year for the right to publish Sports Illustrated. I think what's most difficult about it is certainly sports fans remember Sports Illustrated very, very fondly. So there was lots of equity in the brand. The guys at Arena Group, the ones that bought the license or rented the brand, executed a playbook that was, I think, reasonable, which was increase velocity, extend the stories to new distribution environments, whether that's MSN or Yahoo or whatever. I don't know exactly what the playbook was, but build the uniques on it and do it cost effectively. And inside of that, there was a union that made them slightly less flexible and probably increased the cost of running the business. If you look at the comp score numbers, they did a really good job of building up audience. You are, might you trying to blame, are you trying to blame the unions for this car crash? So far from it, I think that the unions is just one piece that I would highlight as being What about part the people driving the car that crashed into the wall? So let me continue, but I, I like it that you're helping me through but this. But just to be fair, the way Troy was framing it is that the union might have made things a little okay. harder to navigate. Actually, I'll just try to go a little quicker. I think that starting your year with a $15 million license fee just to come get out of the gate impairs your ability to, to execute the playbook significantly. I license media brands all over the world. Like We had license agreements with many people that would publish Hearst brands in lots of markets. 15% is way above what you would license it for for someone to, to do the rest of the work in a market. So if someone's publishing 
Cosmo or Harbors Bazaar or Esquire in another market, your license fees would be sub 10% for sure, closer to five. So they come out of it with a really expensive position just to get started. And then you add to that the overall macro difficulties in the media market. You add to that the fact that the company was highly leveraged and never managed to get out from under the debt that they had. So they had really big debt payments. And it just meant that although Ross and team got Arena Group on a better trajectory and bought a bunch of brands and executed a kind of modern content playbook to grow them, things like Parade that were left for dead that they managed to build some audience around, the company was in a difficult spot. Then when they weren't able, and I don't know exactly why, presumably they ran out of money, apparently they had about $7 million left, when they defaulted on their license payment to Authentic Brands Group, they said, we're taking away your license to publish this product. And at that point, Arena Group had a bunch of people on their payroll that were making Sports Illustrated, but they no longer had the right to publish Sports Illustrated, so they laid everybody off. Then I presume Authentic Brands went on their way and said, we will find someone else to publish this. At which point, I'm sure they're in discussions about how they will execute a handoff because remember, they publish a magazine and there's still people employed there and there's a publishing platform and all that stuff. So will they come to terms with the Garena Group? I'm skeptical. Will someone else step in under new licensing terms and publish the product? I suspect yes. But I don't think it's just going to disappear from the face of the publishing world. No, there's still value to be sucked out of the brand. And that's where... Fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of these once-storied brands will end up, I mean, I inartfully call some of it the SEO glue factory. But, you know, the reality is these brands don't disappear. They just become husks of themselves and they're harvested for some kind of value. I mean, the thing that I take away from it is pretty simple. I think that modern media, you are either, you have platform control or you don't. And very few can get platform control, which is the, I guess, the modern equivalent of having some resilient distribution with which to distribute your content in a predictable way. But to get platform control, you have to have a lot of things. You have to have a technology platform that's well executed and is able to deliver content in an elegant way to the consumer. Think the New York Times app. You have to have the scale of content creation that brings people to that so that you can kind of create a bit of a walled garden outside of the social platforms. Social platforms have their own platform, obviously, and they do it because they manage to get in the very, very coveted position of having the world publish content to their tool. And through that, they're able to create a proposition that is addictive to consumers. And so they have the resilience of having a distribution position. But what we've seen in media is very few companies get to the place where they have the content scale and velocity, technical sophistication, and kind of breadth of relevance to get to a platform position. So in that context, everybody else is fighting to build and manage a media business in an environment where their their distribution and their monetization is unpredictable. And that's what Ezra Klein refers to as the kind of middle where you're what would have been just a normal kind of middle-sized media company. And you have, you say, 100 people and you're making content, but your distribution 
is unpredictable, probably because you're relying on Google or on social or some other form of a small distribution kind of mechanism like email or direct traffic to your site. And then you have the added challenge of mon- managing monetization. Direct is tepid and programmatic yield is weak. And then you say, well, we're going to do subs and subs isn't fill in the gap. So then on the small side, you have people like yourself, Brian, that have extremely lean companies that live inside of a, a world where distribution, quite frankly, isn't going to kill you. You can make ends meet by doing dinners and quote unquote forums. Online forums. Online forums. And you can do that. But the what we knew is the middle, which were most media brands, you know, magazine brands and a lot of newspaper mm-hmm. brands, has evaporated. But that formula you're talking about, it sounds a lot like what you were doing at Say and then at, at Hearst. And what I wonder is, is this an execution problem? Because so many different people have been driving at something broadly similar. And what I wonder is, was it even possible? Because outside of the New York Times, I don't see anyone who has pulled it off. Jeff Bezos hasn't pulled this off. He's losing $100 million a decade. Well, there, there are examples in, in that scale bucket outside of the New York Times, but there's not many. I think the FT would be in that bucket. I think the Wall Street Journal would be in that bucket. I think that Bloomberg would be in that bucket. But that's business news. Well, yeah, I mean, we're talking media broadly, so, but agreed, agreed. It's, it's on the consumer side. Maybe you'd argue that the New Yorkers in that bucket where they, they can manage a subscription centered and high value media company that's not huge. But yeah, you're right. It's, there's not a lot. Not the Atlantic lot. has struggled again, owned by a billionaire. It just seems like that there's, I, I don't mean to be. You know what the Atlantic tried to do is there was so much sort of philanthropic money and energy behind it that they were able to almost get to scale on the kind of quality perspective point of view kind of liberal journalism bucket that has put them in a, in a pretty good position. I suspect they still lose money though. Oh yeah, for sure. They're not, they're not profitable. But to answer your question, I'll, I'll just stick my neck out here. The people that want to throw this at inept management are misguided because I I think that the fail rate would suggest that it's bigger than just management ineptitude. No, just the sheer diversity of failures sort of argues your point. And the sheer diversity of the the, the people who are behind it, because you can pin it on a generation of business leaders of these businesses, but we've had billionaires come in. They can't sort this out. I mean, maybe they're just not like focused on it, but I, I can't get over the fact that Jeff Bezos is losing $100 million a decade in to the Washington. Well, the question on that one is how much money did he agree to lose? But the problem with these, either a business has the heartbeat of a, of a break-even P&L or it doesn't. But there's no such thing to me as being long-term philanthropy funded isn't a thing unless you're like the CBC in Canada and the government's funding you or you're NPR and you're begging every quarter for listener contributions. But yeah, Jeff may have said, listen, it's okay if we lose $500 million for the next five years, but this thing needs to get to profitability and it's clearly struggling to do that. One of the problems with that, with just being inside of companies, Brian, one mm-hmm. of the problem with that brief is once you condition a company to losing money, they lose their muscle. To make it. Yeah, I would guess so. Someone has to put on the pressure to get you to a place where you're just like 
up for figuring out how to get around all the obstacles to to make ends meet. $100 million is a lot. Give me a hopeful picture on any form of scale media emerging from this wreckage. I'm open. I'm open to it. Well, I think that's a difficult question to throw at me like that. I would, and I don't want to rehash why I think that the New York Times succeeded. And and we know that there have been a lot of, I would say, in retrospect, maybe obvious, but maybe non-obvious tactics, including the energy they put into platforms and how they created branded game experiences that drive far more loyalty than content and how they did the same in cooking and all that. But you've heard that story before. I think that more and more media businesses that are of material scale will be attached to other monetization mechanisms that are non-advertising. Particularly, obviously, you'll see that on the video side, and you're seeing it with Apple and, and, and Amazon. I think that the more important question is, will consumers still get what they want? Will consumers still be informed? There I'm more optimistic. Because I feel like I'm extremely well informed without a lot of these media brands that we're crying over. Yeah. Well, that's the unfortunate part, right? Right. I mean, I think this is it, right? Like it's it's that they're not providing something which is essential. Yeah. So I mean, in fact, I can't even keep up with all the stuff I want to consume. And that's for me personally a function of amazing podcasters that do it for love and money. It's the plethora of email newsletters that I get. Again, who knows how they're monetized, but they're they're good and they're informative. And my latest journey into user and semi-user generated content, which is forcing myself to only watch YouTube on my television. And it's been an amazing experiment. And also the just how good the algorithms are obseeding you that stuff, right? It's incredible, Alex, how much like I don't have to look for videos on YouTube. They just get fed to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to sell me on that. But w- with that in mind, and maybe it's because I've been extremely online for since I was a teenager, but so many of the things that are happening today, I kind of... Brian, did you just get online? Me? No. I got, a, I got an AOL address when I was in my early 20s. So there. I think we're all being pretty online. I went through college without email, though. It was glorious. Doesn't it feel like just to, to, what did they say? The chickens are coming home to roost? Like, it's telling that we're trying to well, but, talk but about when it. When you use we're... language like that, I would object as a media wow. practitioner. Yeah, Who are they? I mean, what are they it. roosting? What are they? Well, they're coming home to roost because I did what? Was this like a morality play? I mean, I don't think. No, I don't think it's a morality play. I think it's just there was a business that was potentially running on fumes and kind of like the long tail of behaviors. Selling advertising at rates that were unsustainable, and then something's got to give. And the, the fact that you're and look to the at contrary, them. to the contrary, it was a beautiful equilibrium. A lot of lunches. A lot of people were happy with the advertising they were buying. Alex. A lot of people were making amazing content and were doing it at a pace that was civilized. The media market was a beautiful equilibrium for many, many years, and it's not about someone overpaying or someone coming home to roost. It's just like the fucking distribution system changed, brother. I, I think the, the the podcast was getting a little soft, so I wanted to spice it well, up. Well, no, I, I like that, except that you had a big cry last time I came at you. I never had a big cry. I might have today, though. But here's <laughs> the thing. like, We want to be optimistic, and the only Wait. thing that anybody can ever mention is the New York Times. Let's, let's hear another success story. I think the New York Times is succeeding because it's also 
diversified outside of just traditional media, right? Like you said, games and cooking and all that type of stuff. And it's created a a service that is more like of the Netflix of, of right, content right, but... than anything else. Who else? How else do other people get out of it? It it feels to me like there's you can only survive if you're tiny and nimble, or if you're massive and becomes a, a yeah. subscription service. Right. So we we have to we, yeah right. So let's get beyond that though, because I feel like I mean if if this is the answer, either you're small or you're the New York Times. Let's just end this podcast. <laughs> we might have. To. <laughs> well, we're small. I I would like an answer. What is it? Forbes? Like I don't I don't like I, I don't know what the the answer necessarily is. Private equity juicing your SEO until that collapses. Okay, come on. Let's try to be smarter about this. Let's talk about like an example. So there there are others that are kind of national or international in their scope, and that have managed to scale a, a subscription mechanism and I listed a couple of those right FT I think is one and you're saying it's business media Brian and I get it and and the, mm. the journal is another and I suspect there'll be a few other news products that do the same on the lifestyle side I'm way less optimistic but you know I think that that I would point us just to put our brains on something at the transition or the transformation going on at CNN because I think that's really interesting case study as to whether they can survive a platform shift without the ongoing subsidy of the cable bundle. And I think that it's admirable to see what's going on there and that they're combining national and international, that the newsroom is going to serve a digital audience. They're getting rid of these sort of digital linear constructs. They're really focused on how do we create an innovative news product around the phone it's like good to think about, right? Like it's going to be a real difficult transition to imagine the end point with CNN. And, and guys, help me with this. But like the end point is that you steadily replace your affiliate revenue primarily and advertising too with mm-hmm. a, a, a product substitute that lives on your phone that is completely different in format. It's completely different, I believe, in personality and tone where you have to have deep, a different type of deep technical sophistication to manage audio and video and text in a deliriously fun and engaging package that someone's willing to say, I'm going to pay five bucks a month for this at scale. Because that's where you have to get to. It sounds like they're doing big changes. A lot of the hangups in media seems to be nostalgic. I know that people inside CNN miss that kind of like live, big studios, lots of stuff happening around them, it feels exciting to work. And they're going to have to change that to a model where maybe it turns out that I just load up my HBO Max app and click on give me the news update. And then there's Anderson Cooper for five minutes telling me what's up. You know, (laughs) that's not going to feel the same. Well, I think that's an interesting take because it's totally reasonable that someone would deliver a tight little package to you like that. But the economics of that are just like dramatically different, right? It just may, it may be that despite the fact that they have a globally recognized brand and a news gathering capability all over the world, that they're just too late. And one of the reasons I say that is because this whole thing is about gravity of platforms. Unless you can create a a, a platform that has some gravity that brings people in, either one that you own, not likely, or one that somebody else owns, shitty economics, difficult living by other people's rules, that it's really tough. Now, the question is, can CNN create 
enough gravity to get people into the CNN experience. Yeah. And, and I think that's really difficult given that someone like my son will tell me that he gets tons and tons of news off of YouTube shorts and TikTok. And by the way, I think that this is a total blind spot. I don't think that many media executives, and listen, I, I, I certainly have a lot of it to me is, is opaque. I'm just not in it. I'm not in it because that's not how I behave every day. I'm not following you, the right. I'm not in that feed of content. I don't see TikTok. it. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's why I for, I'm forcing myself to like, I'm force feeding myself YouTube right now because I want to understand what's going on inside of there. Like, I feel like we were making investments in kind of YouTube personalities and trying to like build a media position inside of YouTube, but I didn't really fully understand what it meant to people, what was valuable in the whole vocabulary of that medium, Alex. You got to be in it. You got to see what's going on to compete. Yeah. I, I was struck by Mark Thompson, who's the new boss at CNN. He comes from the New York Times and also he ran the BBC. He came out with you know his memo. These things are difficult because they're always going to be generalities and so you're like, oh, okay. But what I was struck, it, it felt like out of a time capsule. I mean, the stuff, it's like, yeah, okay, sure. But why are you doing this in 2024? I mean, this is one where, look, CNN is still a massive business. It's still, it still throws off a lot of cash. These are things that they should have been doing a long time ago. I think it's a timing problem that it, to be doing it in 2024 and not 2014 or even earlier. Is, You're talking about his announcement that he wants to focus on phones and all that stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, people are watching TikTok. Yeah, but it's so much more than that is what I'm getting at. And, and this is, for example, an area that I would give Puck a lot of credit in, your friend John Kelly. Brian, I like it. You like it when I say that, which is John and co have figured out a kind of new model where it's built around a kind of gossipy, but with authority, personality, meets media brand, a kind of build the main character strategy, a rush the show kind of mentality and, you know, where they'll like overcover something to the point where it becomes a soap opera. And I find that their feeds of content delivered largely across email and podcasts are a welcome new addition to my media world, one that I spend time with. And I think very few newcomers get that formula and execute on that formula. And if CNN, and I'm, I, I'm not trying to compare, CNN's competition is the New York Times. And if CNN is going to compete, they're not going to put existing CNN personality, name one, inside of a TikTok feed. That's not the answer. They've got to reconstruct their content for a completely different audience and distribution environment. And that's the hard part. The thing is, it's under new leadership, but a lot of the people that thought that uh, doing CNN Plus was a good idea are still there, you know? But wait, I was CNN Plus a bad idea? Against... I mean, maybe the timing was wrong, but was it a bad idea? I mean, fine, Terrible. the cooking shows were a little <laughs> not great. Well, I mean, talking about like... They brought branding. back Alex it... McCollum. She was the one who was running it. She went to the Washington Post for like a cup of coffee. It wasn't CNN Plus. It was everything but CNN. So it was like... What the CNN anchors do on the weekend? Well, they, they like, thought of, they thought about calling it C, CNN minus, but it didn't have the same <laughs> positivity. True. That would have been a more honest branding. But 
It was a terrible idea. There was no value in it. Nobody wanted it. And I think that the, the just Sean Anderson Hooper on TikTok is still the way a lot of folks in those companies think. Alex, I think when, when you're a, a news company and you're trying to create a streaming alternative to something that you already had, you, your your mind goes to like, let's do talk shows and docs and let's slide a little bit over into yeah, lifestyle. And the thing is, is that I don't think people want that. They have to figure out what is fundamentally a new news product. But also, Troy, they, they need it just the CNN Plus thing. The reason I mention it is that they need to be ready to hurt what's there now to get anywhere. What I'm saying is at some point, you know, Steve Jobs said, we're going to remove the disk drive or we're going to kill a feature that makes us a bunch of money now because we're going to focus on another feature. And this idea of landing both planes at once or keeping the CNN machine generating revenue while you're trying to reinvent it, that's what never works. Uh, Alex, Alex, he, they have shareholders. I know, I understand that. What I'm saying, I'm not saying that there was some writing about the fact that Intel got completely overtaken by other Intel? By the company. Yeah, at the time yeah. when it was building chips. And if you look at the CEO and leadership's decisions, they were making all the right decisions. They were just put in an impossible situation, which is you either start shut everything down and kill your business for three years, or you try to continue to hit the quarterlies and watch everybody lap you. And this is what's going to happen for these businesses, which is the reinvention, I feel, is so deep that the person that's making those decisions is faced with an impossible situation. They can't kill the golden goose because CNN still makes money. And yet they can't make big enough changes because like, the organization is not focused. It's like, yeah, maybe it's not impossible, but it's definitely hard. I, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's... I'd love, I think it's a really interesting challenge, to be honest with you. Would you take it? I mean, I would. I'd probably get fired halfway through, but <laughs> now I'm, I'm immune to those. Just negotiate a good exit package. It's fine. Yeah. If I did it, I'd probably try to do it more like Mark Thompson did it, which is kind of more gentlemanly and British. But I think it's extremely difficult. It is, like you said, Alex, it's this kind of balance between keeping the cash coming in and going through this really difficult cultural change that's fundamental to the core news product. And I, and I think that's, that's super hard. Okay. So but on the other hand, you have great brand, you have news bureaus all over the world, you have lots of great journalists, you have a lot of runway, you've got several years of runway. So, you know, have at it. Tell me this, this makes sense because I've been thinking about it. And I think in the tech industry, we're kind of indoctrinated with this idea that everything changes and you throw the past away to, to a fault, right? Where, where there's a lot of kind of uh, knee-jerk reactions and dropping of good ideas before they're fully matured. But media seems to be really stuck in this world where there's a lot of nostalgia and there's a lot of holding on to the past and the way things work. And it's going to be hard to change things where the entire culture of the organization is still clinging on to a world which no longer exists. I think you're looking at it the wrong way. I don't think that that's media. I think that's anybody. I think that's happening at Google. I think that's happened at Microsoft. I think it happens wherever there's a, a cash bigot in a need to change and lots of competitors that want to disrupt you. I mean, print magazines still exist. Yeah, and people yeah. like them. Yeah, I'm actually on Troy's side. I, th I think a lot of the cultural problems are a little bit overrated and stuff. It's, it's easy for tech to preach nonstop about disruption and whatnot when they have monopoly positions. Google can be poorly run, and apparently it is poorly run. You know, you share that the verbatim 
that was I shared. can talk to that. I can talk about that if Wait, you want. Are we are we in the tech corner now? It, well, we're we're inching towards it. We are sachet. By the way, I wanted to add one of the other things that Puck is doing quite as well is they're also doing online forums. They've got one tomorrow. Lauren's doing one. She's also not calling it a webinar. You know, an online forum just feels like a- it's the future of media. No, it feels like a penthouse forum. <laughs> I used to use online forums back in the 90s when I needed to figure out which driver I needed for this DVD drive I just bought. Is that the right name? Do you, do you need some, do we need to kind of workshop? I feel like some, enough time, enough time has gone, but well, virtual summit is the other option. Whatever. Yeah. We'll try both. We'll A-B test it. No, I think you like should that, go, right? I think you should go further afield and be like a gathering. Yeah. Or like a, uh, what's the, maybe a, sort of some type of exotic and ethnic word for gathering. <laughs> well, I mean, forum, ancient Greece, like a bathhouse vibe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a cool name. Maybe you should do that. It's the rebooting bathos. <laughs> Join us in the bathhouse. Digital Coliseum. I want to stay away from modifiers like digital and virtual. But you have to, because otherwise people are going to show up. Yeah, no, virtual and digital are stupid. Nobody needs to use those anymore. God, easy. Yeah, we'll work on it for you, Brian. All right, so anyway, internal cultural problems. These usually aren't as severe. You can usually overcome them when you have a stranglehold on the markets you operate in. Go figure. It's harder when you've got the entire world collapsing around you, I find. Okay. So, Brian, you were taking us. Yeah, no, let's, let's talk about Google and what is going on at Google because nobody, nobody is immune to the challenges of fiefdoms and cultural stagnation. Yeah. Okay. So did you write this in the feed, Alex? Is this, are these your words? Which words? I don't know about Google, your take on Google. I, I've, I've written a lot about Google. Well, I, I thought it might be useful. Let's get specific. Since I can only talk about technology for five minutes of this podcast, yep. to have a little corner where I can not only kind of rehash the news, but just give people uh, a sense uh, of what's been I, happening I wouldn't, in I wouldn't world. do a five-minute setup then. Let's dig in. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I did buy a Vision Pro. It's getting here February 2nd. We'll have a, a full uh, review, and hopefully I'll join you guys on the Vision Pro next week. But here's what I'm hearing, some really interesting thing around recruiting. Google is, the, the, the entire sentiment around Google has shifted massively and really quickly. Of course, the looming layoffs and all that stuff, but it's no longer seen as an innovator and that's been happening for a long time. There's been issues with Google never being able to commit to building new things. And now the, there's hardware division concerns but can and we get where? Where's this data coming from? It's coming from, from people that I, from people I'm talking to. We we live in an industry here where a lot of people either work at Google or are looking for jobs right now. And the jobs that people are looking for, as as you expect, are the open AIs of the world. But it's been really surprising how negative the sentiment has gotten around Google. Because even does this Google, mean, by the way, Alex, that I could get a job at Google without answering the question like how many ping pong balls fit in a VW bus? Yeah, <laughs> probably. You're very employable the at Google. standards right have been lowered, Troy. This could be your time to strike. We can put it in the show notes, but this was elevated by a, a senior tenured engineer that wrote a live LinkedIn post which was fascinating, calling that there are no C-suite SVPs or VPs that are not profoundly boring and glassy-eyed, and Google has not launched one single success, successful executive thing in years. And it's the type of thing that was, you know, type of talk that was happening outside of Google, but it's really happening inside of Google right now. And they're, they're having retention problems. They're having problem hiring people. 
they're throwing a ton of money because they, they, they need to do all these AI hires. And I've heard that the one that has had the biggest gains, the company that has the biggest gains, has been Meta. Meta has done a complete turnaround and has gone from a company that few people were excited to talk about working as to becoming quite popular in the valley. So that's hard know, for you was, to say because you used to shit on them routinely. Yeah, no, and I still do. And but I, you know, I want to be honest with it. They had a, an amazing string of successes and focuses, right? The Threads launch, I think, is appreciated in the tech community because they, they launched a Twitter competitor like in months and it's been stable and focused. Don't we hate everybody on Threads? I like Threads. I've been doing pretty well on Threads. It's not Threads I hate, it's the people that use it. Do you? I mean, maybe your people are probably on X. Oh, yeah. They finally have a place that won't ban them. But No, we kick the libs out of. It's very problematic, Alex. It's exactly like high school, as I always say. When you kick the cool kids out of, of the libs are generally cool kids, you kick them out, you lose yeah. kind of your cultural vibe, and then you just have the wing nuts that probably maybe have something to say, and in many cases, an admirable political position. But. Admirable <laughs> <laughs> political position. Yeah. But but you lose the cool factor. You do lose the cool factor. It's but if you're like, if you want to go be cool on Mark Zuckerberg's platform called Threads, I feel sad for you. <laughs> it's it's working out. I had an opportunity to try to rebuild an audience, and I have been pretty successful at it. I like it. I'm not saying it's going to be a winner, but let's let's what Meta's been up to. Meta's announced and has done a lot in open source AI. Is it because people are nice with, to you on Threads, Alex? No, actually, I just get a lot more engagement. Their algorithm is a lot better. And Threads, if you want to take an aside and talk about Threads for a second, Threads sometimes feels like Reddit, where there'll be a lot more conversations on it rather than kind of just the drive-by likes that was happening on Twitter. Are people fighting about politics and like Israel and stuff like that? Yeah, there are some. Yeah, but how are you going to learn about you know Ron DeSantis ending his campaign or about crypto? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't learn about Ron DeSantis starting his campaign on X with that glorious live stream he did. I mean, it ended the way it started, right? And yes, I, I am getting less excellent hot takes on crypto. That's true. The way it's built, we can talk about threads another day. I think it's a good product, and I can talk to why I think it's successful. Back to Meta, which I think is is having a resurgence. They've also launched really fun and, and good hardware. Those Meta Ray-Ban glasses are actually really well-respected and quite a success. They've yeah, managed, I, like I think, to build the first consumer product of its kind that isn't creepy, which is really interesting. And then the launch of the Vision Pro actually makes that whole Metaverse strategy look a little less crazy. But on top of that, their focus on AI has taken kind of the attention away from, from the Metaverse bullshit. And so they just now seem like they're building... Good products. The Quest 3 is a good product. So it's overall seems like a well-run company and people are much more likely mm -hmm. to want, that I've talked to, are much more likely to want to work for Meta than, than Google. Big, massive issues for Google, even though their business is still doing great and their stock <laughs> I, is I up. I want to point we, that we out. I have like 1.85 trillion market cap, this, this failure of a company called Google, up 47% in the last year. They just have a cash machine. They keep printing money. This is what struggling looks like in the tech industry. I think the thumb is on the scale. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. I mean, I think there is, but if you look at Microsoft under Balmer also did really well for 10 years. So there's a lot of like humes left in that tech. The thing about Google is that it feels the weakest that it's ever been. And I wonder what the negotiations with Apple are going to be like. You know, Google pays Apple 17 billion. 
to stay relevant and to stay on their phones. Imagine if they spent that innovating. Imagine if Apple said, we're going to stop and compete with you. That's actually the, the best thing that could ever happen to Google is for Apple to stop taking that money and for Google to stop innovating by just like paying their way into people's first clicks. So Google is, is in massive trouble right now and it feels bigger than ever, bigger than ever. Also, there was something about Mr. Beast being on X, which, which I'm sure you guys have been, have been following. Mr. Beast? He made it. Well, he's yeah. going, he's, uh, apparently Amazon is going to pay him $100 million, which I think it's interesting to see the power of individuals and influencers when they go into quote unquote traditional media. I know Amazon is not technically traditional media, but going into like a TV, streaming is TV now. It's interesting the leverage that personalities end up having. I saw Stephen A. Smith, even with ESPN struggle, Stephen A. Smith is looking to command $20 million a year. He's a sports guy. Yes, I I thought so. He yells a lot. (laughs) Do we have a good product? So a couple things. First of all, God bless the Buffalo Bills and the Green Bay Packers. Good northern franchises that just never quite pulled it out this year. And seemingly the beautiful losers, the Buffalo Bills, are cursed to miss field goals at critical times in a playoff game. If there's ever a theme for this podcast is that we keep talking about losers. Yeah, this is Sports Corner. (laughs) I want to just highlight a couple things. First of all, I mean, I really like this unsweetened green tea. I buy it by the case. What's the brand name? Ito N? Ito N? Can you spell that out for us? I don't know. Remember, this is an audio podcast. Yeah, unsweetened green tea. And it has it has the telltale Japanese packaging. Yeah, great at packaging. It's a lot of plastic that's going to go back into the ocean. Granted. Yeah. Okay. And then I want to highlight a media best a good product, and I really like it. Actually, it's Rick Rubin's new podcast called Tetragrammaton. He gets on. A wide range of people, mostly cultural personalities, ranging from like Jason Blum to fashion designer James Purse to even Mark Andreessen showed up to Terry Gilliam. So interesting range of people. He doesn't spend a lot of time like going on and on about his point of view on something. He just basically asks questions. And then Brian, you'll like it because their ad format is very specific they produce all of the ads on the on the podcast with their own background sounds and stuff and it it fits better and i who knows maybe it performs better the third product which is going to maybe get a little geekier alex and maybe you'll like this one is i've wrestled with my digital source for my high fidelity solution for a bit and what that means is if you're not playing vinyl how do you get high quality digital signal into your stereo equipment. And the solution for me for a long time was something called Rune, which is is like Sonos on steroids. It's a, a music management software that's about $800. And you have to have a dedicated server to run it. And then you can run the remote on, I'm getting geeky now, on your phone or your iPad or whatever. But there's been a bit of a renaissance happening in the streamer slash DAC, which is a digital audio converter slash preamp world and there's a new device called the ever solo which is basically a streamer for your stereo and a DAC together for under a thousand dollars and it's really super cool so why why that versus airplane spotify 
I know oh, I'm dear. setting myself up, but just tell us, tell us why for those who don't have the time or money or interest. Uh, if you're interested in, it's just audio reproduction quality. But I, our, I, at our age, are our ears even able to notice that? Oh, it I literally the, sounds that like I have the ears of a young dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, either you care or you don't. So if you just want to use Sonos or stream off your phone, you know, have at it. But if you care about high-end audio, it's a good time to be alive. Because you can combine really weird, like, analog tube stuff from wherever you like to get your tubes to Japan. And oh, yeah. With, so where I get all my tubes. And you combine that with a nice, clean digital source. I wish this was a video podcast because... Brian looks like he just smelled a fart. This is awful. No, no, Brian. I said like grapes one time. I want to go back to the grapes. I want to go back to the grapes. So now I I get super specific and you don't like what I'm talking about. No, I just have nothing to add. Do you have a good product? I mean, I lost one of my AirPods and I'm just like going with just the right right AirPod because I will not pay Tim, Tim Apple. For two AirPods when I just need one. My daughter woke up. She had a dream that she had some like kind of like cockroach or something in her mouth. And she woke up and her AirPod was in her mouth. Oh, Jesus. That's funny. Yeah, so they're a choking hazard. I fall asleep with my AirPods sometimes and I always wonder what those radiations are doing to my brain. I fall asleep listening to podcasts all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure people fall asleep listening to this one. Do you think if you sleep, <laughs> if you sleep with a podcast on, you absorb it? Oh, 100%. I've done it enough. I don't think so. I have weird knowledge that I wake up with. Because I think you wake up a little bit, you know, throughout. I actually forgot to set the timer on and I woke up to Scott Galloway talking in my ear, which was somewhat unpleasant. Well, it's kind of hot. Thank you all for listening. And if you like this podcast, I hope you do. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast that takes ratings and reviews. Always like to get those. And if you have feedback, do send me a note. My email is bmorrissey at therebooting.com. Be back next week. I hate you. All right. All right. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.